Well, thanks for that. Um, take that resource home. It's uh, some really helpful prayer points there as we continue to intercede and trust God to move uh, in this world. Uh, Aaron talked about the Arise Day starting on Saturday, so yeah, we would love you to come join us. Unfortunately, at this point, there's no childcare provided, so sorry, because um, I know that affects a lot of people. Um, but yeah, come along. This is a chance to come together, to learn, to reflect. Uh, we do a lot of time in church where we come and we hear, and then we leave with the intent to do something about it. Um, so we're trying to put some spaces where we can take what we're listening to and learning and actually dig deep into our lives and apply it so that we can come out changed. So that's coming up this Saturday. Um, also, if you follow the church calendar, you'll know this is the first Sunday of Lent. So Lent started on Wednesday. So Christians all around the globe are fasting uh, on the approach to Easter. And if that's not a, a Uh, a practice you're familiar with. You can jump on Google. You can come talk to me about it. Um, But I like to engage this every year. It helps me in the anticipation of what happened to Easter. So uh, I'm fasting caffeine and refined sugar. So no teas, no coffees, no sweet stuff for me. Um, And that's the the discipline of abstinence, getting rid of those things. And then uh, it's been three and a half years. I I used to swim a lot. I haven't been in the pool since Sky was born. Uh, so I've decided alongside fasting some things, I'm going to look after my body a little better and jump in the pool. So this last week I was in the pool three out of the four days that I wanted to be there. Um, and so just to prepare you, this is a season of Lent, but watch out, buff pastor is coming. Uh, it's, <laughs> uh, we'll see, we'll see. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I invite you to join me in that. It's an important time, um, and, and the discipline of fasting is such an important thing and helping to deepen our spirituality and anticipate the Easter celebration. Um, so we're about to jump into Zechariah, so we're going to continue um, working our way through this book. You know, it's always important just to give the, the kind of philosophy behind what we're doing. I have a huge value. I know this church has a huge value of the scriptures. And so one of the things we're committed to is systematically working through books of the Bible. So we have seasons like this where we take a book like Zechariah and we just work through all of the content. And then we intersperse that with some topical series that, that are about the vision, the direction of the church, relevant things in the world. But we want to be a church that is always rooted in the scriptures. Um, We've spent a lot of time as a church in the New Testament, and so we're jumping into a little bit of a crazy part of the Old Testament that is huge in the way it impacts and informs the New Testament. We'll see a little bit about that today. Um, And and this is a a book of the Bible. What is going on with the Israelites at this point in the story is so applicable to where we are as a church and where we are in the world that we're living in in right now. Um, And so that's why we're jumping into Zechariah. And so just again, to, to bring you up to speed with where we're at in the story, the people of Israel were called by God. They were sent into the promised land. They were given a covenant that if you obey me, you will be the agents that that I will use to bless the world. But if you don't, I'm going to send you out of the land because it's the only way that you're going to learn. Um, And so we're at a point in the story where they've been exiled out of the land because of their unfaithfulness to that covenant. In that time period, the temple was destroyed. So the center of their worship and the thing that showed them that they were God's people is gone. Um, And they've been sent back to the land to rebuild they've laid the foundation of the temple, but then a lot of opposition round about and internal discouragement and conflict and division has meant that the temple's been going unfinished. And so we're in 
this 20-year period between laying the foundation and the temple being completed. And if you like your Bible, which you should, I'd encourage you to jump back and read Ezra. You don't need to read all of it. Just read the first six chapters because we see the process of them going back to the land and start building. And in Ezra 6, we see the temple being completed. So we know that these things Zechariah prophesied um, are going to happen. We've got it historically documented that this came true. So this point in the story, God is looking at these people. You've messed up. You've got it wrong. Things aren't the way you want it to go, but keep going. And I promise you that if you keep leaning into me and keep trusting me, you will see happen the things that, that you have been promised and the things that you're longing for. So we're in Zechariah chapter 4. So this is the fifth of eight visions that Zechariah has on one night, February 19th, 519 BC. From last week, last week was the vision of Joshua the high priest having his filthy garments removed. And the story was saying that the, um, that the restoration that's coming is going to happen through the spiritual cleansing of the high priest representative of the priesthood representative of all the people of Israel who are representative of what God wants to do in the whole world. So the last vision said spiritual cleansing is necessary. This vision that they're about to, to see is all about the spiritual power that is necessary to do the work that God has called them to do. Um, and so it's going to have huge implications for us. What is it that is necessary for us if we're going to do individually and corporately the work that God's called us to do? Um, so if you've got your Bible, jump to Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah chapter 4, and we'll read this chapter. So this is chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. So he's been in this, this last vision. He's in this kind of sleepy state. The angel grabs him, shakes him up, and says, What do you see? And he answers, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. I asked the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? Not like, what is it I'm seeing, but what do they mean? What are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are the two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? And he replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Crazy vision. In a minute, I'm going to stick up some, some imagery to help us root this in our minds. But, but what is this vision? 
Um, all through this vision, uh, all through this vision series, we've talked about th- the visions are all rooted around this temple being rebuilt. And so all of the imagery that they're using is drawn from the temple. And so right here, you've got this moment where he sees this solid gold lampstand. And any good Jew and any person that's grown up knowing the scriptures understands the illusion that that makes back to the temple. Um, what was the lampstand? The lampstand was this item that was made. We're going to look at the, the descriptions of how it was made. But, but what happened with the lampstand was when they made the, the, the temple, you had right in the middle, you had the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God's presence dwelled. Outside of that, you had a room and there were three things in the room. Uh, there was an altar of incense. There was an altar where they put bread on it as an offering to the Lord. And there was a lampstand. Uh, and this gold lampstand stood there, lighting the way into the Holy of Holies. Um, and the instructions that were given was that every night, at, as the sun starts to go down, all the way through until the sun comes up in the morning, this lamp was to be kept burning to light the way into the presence of God. So this is a significant uh, piece of equipment. If you zoom out on the temple, outside of that is where you had the altar where there were burning sacrifices, the big bath where the priests would wash. But as they went through ritual cleansing, the previous vision, they would walk into this room where this lampstand would light the way into the presence of God. So this is what he's seeing. Um, So I want to jump back into Exodus 25. If you have your Bible, you can flip there. We're going to look in verse 31. And and just I'm doing this just to remind us of the Old Testament context and and what it is that he is seeing uh, or thinking about as he gets this vision. So this is Exodus 25, starting at 31. There's some little geeky details. Um, So Moses is told, Make a lampstand of pure gold, hammer out its base and shaft, and make its flower-like cups buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side, three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with uh, with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair. Six branches and all the buds and the branches shall all be of one piece and the lamps, uh, with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. Then make it seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. So if you're a visual person, you read that and you start to picture it. I am not a visual person, so I read that and I'm just like, someone want to draw this for me because I have no idea. There's buds, there's lampstands, there's branches, whatever. Um, but just, I, I, I go back there just to say, when, when, um, when Zechariah has seen this vision and it's a gold lampstand, regardless of what that lampstand looks like, Uh, within their culture, he would automatically associate it with this lampstand and its purpose within the temple. Um, If we jump into the next book in Leviticus 24, um, we see the end of the priesthood about how they're to treat this lampstand. So Leviticus 24, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to bring your clear oil of pressed olives. You see, the connection to the passage. Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning continually. Outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. The lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord must be tended continually. 
So, so these lampstands were significant, and one of the key important duties of the priesthood, and, and not just any of the priesthood, but Aaron and his direct descendants were responsible to make sure that this light was continually burning. Um, if, you, uh, if you have lots of Bible knowledge, your mind may be going other places in Scripture, and we'll, we'll pull this in later, but Jesus tells a parable about ten virgins that have these oil lamps, and they're waiting for the bridegroom, but he's not coming at the time that they're expecting. Some of them, their oil disappears, and so they run off to get new oil, and the bridegroom arrives, and there's these people with their oil that has been kept burning. They were supplied. They were ready for the return of Jesus. And so those, those moments are looking back to the, the importance that this lampstand was and lighting the way to Jesus and, and this job that we have of, of making sure that lamp is burning continually. There's lots of places in Scripture where this motif is there. Last, last uh, other Scripture that I want to jump to just to, to point out some things. I want to jump ahead to Revelation. So John's revelations um, that he has recorded in the book of Revelation— um, they draw really heavily and are inspired and impacted by and correspond with Zechariah. And, and the book of uh, Revelation depends on the imagery of Zechariah more than any other book. Um, and so here you jump forward to Revelation 11 um, to see every prophecy in Scripture has the fulfillment. I guess I can't say every prophecy in Scripture but lots of prophecies in Scripture, maybe all of them, have their fulfillment in the time that they were spoken and a future fulfillment. And this vision that Zechariah is getting is one of these examples. So uh, John sees this vision. I was given a reed like a measuring rod two visions ago in, in, in Zechariah, and told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. Exclude the outer court. Don't measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if you look at your footnote in your Bible, it's going to say Zechariah chapter 4. So just to say, as we're looking at this passage and we're going to ask, what does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? We have to remember that these prophecies also have a future fulfillment that we're still waiting on. Uh, there are two people that, that Zechariah understood these witnesses or these olive trees to be. But then we look ahead to these two witnesses in Revelation that are yet to come uh, and, and play a significant role in the establishing of God's kingdom. Okay, so that's all the Bible background stuff. I want to, I want to jump in and, and put up some pictures here. Um, if you open some commentaries and start reading about this lampstand, there's lots of debate about what this lampstand would have looked like. And so the default in your mind, if you're a Christian, is the one in the bottom right. Like we think of the menorah that's in the temple. Um, and I don't know how many of you pictured that when I was reading Exodus. Uh, I, I don't. I just see the words. Um, there's another group of scholars that argue, based on the passage, that they're not speaking specifically about this, but these other images are of other lampstands that existed that have a central bowl that's a receptacle for oil, and then several little lamps that surround it in a circle that then create, uh, that have little wicks coming off so that the central pot is fueling the outside. Um, why am I telling you this? Just because we're messing with the imagery, and I don't want us to just assume we know what these things look like, um, but we'll see some of how this gets interpreted by artists as we move on. Either way, 
And again, if you pick up a commentary, they're going to debate this. Either way, it doesn't matter whether it's the round one or the one that looks exactly like the temple. As soon as he saw the golden lampstand, he knew exactly what it was pointing to, uh, both back to this temple one and forward to the messianic age. So here's, here's a couple of images that I like, artist renditions of this vision. So the first one, I like this because of the way this one shows the illumination in the darkness. Um, you've got this golden bowl receiving oil from these, these trees on the sides. You've got this uh, ancient, like, circular bowl with the lamps round about. Um, so if you're on one side of, of what kind of artifact we're looking at, you depict it this way. Um, the second one I like more because it's more realistic. So this is a, a real-life vision. Um, <laughs> we do... On to the next one, Karen. We do... Um, yeah... I like this image. Um, just a little musing that goes on in my head. You know, we see, we see uh, graphic design stuff all the time. We see cartoons and magazines. We see uh, cartoons and animated films. I found myself wondering as I was looking at these different images, like, how did Zechariah see this? Like, did he see it like real life vivid like this? Or did he see it like a cartoon? And could he see it like a cartoon because he'd never seen a cartoon? And so I was just like, how, how do you see? Because your dreams are usually pretty vivid and lifelike. Um, so I imagine this. And, and the reason I like this image, um, apart from the lifelike nature of it, is the thing this captures that none of the others did that I looked at is the continually flowing oil. So the image that we're going to look at in this passage is that these olive trees are supplying a continual flow of oil into the bowl that then automatically stalks these lamps so that they never go out. Um, and this really is what we are invited into in our spiritual journey. So this vision, this image, it should invoke something in you. Um, I, I know how this goes. You, uh, you come to church, like if you search deep inside, there may be mixed motives to why you turn up, but if you search deep down inside, the real reason that we come to church is because we have a longing for Christ. Uh, if you don't know Jesus and you turn up in this church, you've not realized it yet, but the reason that you walk through the door is that inside of you is a longing for Jesus. And everyone from the youngest to the oldest, we're here and we have a desire to grow. We have a desire to learn. Uh, no one wants to be stagnant in their spirituality. No one's sitting like, if I could just, just like maintain this till I die, like we're good. Like we want more. We want more of Jesus. We want to know his word better. We want to hear his voice more clearly. We want to see the sin in our life shed. We want to see reconciliation. We want to understand that sense of purpose. Uh, young people are sitting going, I don't know my purpose yet. I'm trying to figure out my purpose for the first time. And what is it that I'm being called to do in this world? Elder people in the church are going, I'm retired now. Like I've served a long purpose. And now I'm trying to refigure out, like what's my new purpose in this season? So we have all of this longing for Jesus. The vision that Zechariah has here is that there's this never-ending supply of oil available to us to keep this fire burning continually for Jesus and in his presence, that we can be those people who light the way for others into the presence of God. So you're probably here, some of you have a desire, you're here this morning, you have a desire for more hope. 
you're looking at the world and going, I just, I just need to believe that, that there's better out there. Some of us, we come in the door, I want to be a better person. You look back at the week and you're just like, man, I wish I could do things differently. Some of you are looking at sin and brokenness. You walk in the door today, I desire freedom from this pattern that has plagued my life. For some of us, it's looking out into the world and you desire to see transformation and desire to be an agent of transformation. You desire to be useful, to have an impact. We desire deeper, fuller, more intimate, more rich, more present experiences with Jesus. And that's what this passage is promising to them and through that to us. As the people of Israel looked at the work God was calling them to do, rebuild this temple, in that place of discouragement, will it ever happen? Will, will, will this kingdom ever be reestablished the way it was supposed to be? This is the vision God gives. And so we're going to ask the question, what does it mean? How, 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 what does it mean for them? And what does it mean for us that this is how we do the work that God has called us to do? So these words, this vision is as equally true for us as it was for them. And it's equally true for us individually as we're pursuing God and then corporately as a church as we pursue God together. So three key verses in this passage that talk about how God's work is accomplished in in the world. And so so here's number one. God's work is accomplished. We know this. This is 101. God's word is accomplished by the Spirit, by His Spirit. Zechariah sees that vision and he says to the angel, what is this and what does it mean? And the angel doesn't say, let me give you an interpretation of each of these images. He just looks Zechariah straight in the eye and says, that vision was there. This is all you need to know. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Let me just get a little show of hands. Who, if you received that vision and said to God, what is this, would be super frustrated with this answer? (laughs) I'm like, tell me the answer. Don't make me do the work. Um, So this is the answer. In the discouragement that they were facing, the answer was not, go try harder, offer more sacrifices, do more work, get your life together. It wasn't, go, you know the covenant, go do all the things that the covenant says. It was not try harder, not do more work, but by my spirit is the answer to how God is going to accomplish his work. Um, I want to look at the two words in here, might and power. Um, They're synonyms. And so it could just be poetry, but there are some unique nuances to each of these words. I don't like to make too much of the nuances, but sometimes looking at them can just help us understand a little bit more of what he might have been intending. Um, So the word might, hail, a force, whether of men, means, or other resources. So an army, wealth, virtue, valor, strength. And sometimes when this word is used, there's an undertone of moral worth or moral worthiness. So why did I put that up there? A lot of the time when this word is translated in Scripture, and they're talking about the strength of a nation, it's translated as army. So this word, when you're talking about Egypt, when you're talking about the wars in the Old Testament, this word is often referring to military strength, and sometimes has this moral worthiness component underneath it. And then you've got this word, uh, koach, human strength, ability, efficiency. This is the word when Samson is, is bringing down the house because he's got this incredible strength. Um, that's the word used of him as an individual exerting his human ability. So you do have in this not by might, not by power, some nuances in these words. Like, remember, they're trying to rebuild the temple. So God's saying, it doesn't matter how many people you have. 
And it doesn't matter how strong or efficient each person is, that's not how we're going to do this. In your life, it doesn't matter how many people you gather around, how much time you pray, how many Bible verses you memorize. It doesn't matter how much self-discipline you can muster to grin and bear and get out of the situation you're in. It's not about that. It's about your, his spirit. It's the same thing in the church. It's not about how many Bible studies can we do, how many times can we get in a room and, and learn more Bible, do more praying. It's not about that. It's about his spirit. And in our Christian life, we get this so wrong. We experience discouragement. We're trying to figure out what we're supposed to do in the world. We're trying to figure out what, what's our role within the church. It's like, okay, I just got to try harder. I got to do more. The thing's going wrong in my life or because God's punishing me because I did something wrong. So I just got to white knuckle it and get over this. This is not the invitation that God gives to us. Yes, we use our ability. Yes, we use our strength. Yes, we engage our self-discipline. But it's not our might. It's not our power. But it's the work of the Spirit that's going to do the work. And so his message to them, it doesn't matter how many people help rebuild, doesn't matter how strong and efficient each person is, my spirit is the one that's going to guarantee that this work gets done. And why is that helpful? Because it doesn't matter if you're being attacked by enemy forces and your numbers numbers dwindle. It doesn't matter if all of your strong men are called out to war and it's just women and children left behind, not that women can't be strong. Um, But it doesn't matter who's left behind, how weak and frail they are. It's his spirit that does the work. And we know that in the story of Samson. We know it in the story of Gideon. We see it over and over and over in Scripture. So not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And the second thing that the angel explains to Zechariah is that God's work almost always comes from small, humble beginnings. As you get this line as he's explaining what's going on, who dares despise the day of small things? You're looking at how little work has been done and you're discouraged and you're despising it. But just watch because you're going to look at a mountain and that mountain is going to become like a flat plain with Zerubbabel. and, and again, we know, we know how this works, right? God always starts from humble beginnings. How does the whole Bible begin? In the beginning, there's nothingness and formlessness and void. And out of nothing, God says, let there be light and the world is created. The whole story of the Bible is that God takes one man, Abraham, and sets him apart to be his nation. And all of Israel is birthed out of this one man. Uh, we had a fun time at the start of the year doing 24-7 prayer that organization has been praying round the clock for 22 years, and it all started with one little prayer room in a little place in England that no one's heard of. Um, you think of all the revivals in church history. How are the revivals traced? They are all traced back to some little group of people that no one knew or had heard of that prayed fervently. And in those revival stories, we can always trace it back to one little group. But at the end of the day, the reality is there were multiple little groups in hiddenness interceding for God to move. And it was the precursor. Um, You think about Jesus, the carpenter's son. He came as this little baby, a humble, small beginning that was the rescue of our world. Think about this church. A couple of people getting together for a Bible study and inviting some other people along. And, and now we've got a church that's been in existence for almost 50 years, continuing to pursue the heart of God. Um, I think about my own spiritual growth journey. I remember being, I think I was 18, 17, 18, and I was at a, a leadership training with a group called Scripture Union. Um, and we did camps for middle schoolers and high schoolers and elementary school kids. And I was at this leader training, and I remember this woman standing up talking about prayer and journaling. 
And she was talking about how, you know, she gets up and she prays for hours every morning. And I'm looking at me going, I barely pray for like two minutes. And she said, well, what I started doing was I just started writing my prayers. And, and she's like, and I, I would write just a couple of sentences each day. And then all of a sudden it's a paragraph. And then all of a sudden it's half a page. And then one day I'm sitting there and I'm writing multiple pages. And she's like, you just got to start somewhere. Humble beginnings. So what was my journey? Like, I remember sitting listening to her talk and thinking, I could never pray for hours. I could, I, could, I could never pray for 30 minutes, let alone an hour. It was just inconceivable to me. And so I did what she said. I started journaling my prayers, and it was a couple of sentences, and then it was half a page, and then it was a full page, and then now I write until my hands in cramp, and I'm like, just, just quit. And then we do experiences like we did here where we gather, and everyone's like, I don't know how to all pray out loud together for the same amount of time. This is awkward, and, and we start. And from those humble beginnings, we're growing in our perseverance, going from unable to pray for any length of time to sustained prayer. God's work always begins with humble beginnings. So as you look at them with this temple that's been destroyed, I wonder if the mountain in the passage that's going to become level plains is, is the mountain of destruction of the temple and all the broken rubble that's there that are slowly going to be cleared away uh, and, and made plain. But you look at them as they're going, the, the building's barely been started. We've stopped. We're in a mess. And the promise was from this humble beginning, the temple is going to be rebuilt. God's presence is going to be restored in the land. And this is going to be the image that 2,000 years later, a church in Hillsborough is going to be talking about to understand their intimacy with Jesus. And then you look at your own life, the, the sin that you're dealing with, the brokenness that you're experiencing, the grief and the loss in your life. As you look back and go, I wish my spirituality was in a much better place. God loves to start with humble beginnings and then grow it into something powerful for him. So it doesn't matter how messy it looks or how difficult it seems. God will use that and build on that to make you what you need to be. The third thing that you see in this passage is right at the end, uh, God, as he does his work in the world, always mediates his world through spirit-empowered people. You know, this little conversation at the end, oh, there's these oil, these, these trees, what are those trees? Um, and the answer was, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of the earth. So what's he talking about immediately? Uh, they would have understood they're talking about Zerubbabel and Joshua. Joshua, the high priest that we looked at in the vision last week. Zerubbabel is a descendant of David who was sent back to the land uh, and was the one that laid the foundation. So they're looking, going, these two people, the one representing the priesthood and the one representing the, the royal line, these two are the anointed ones that are going to guarantee that this work is done. Uh, one of them is going to lead the efforts uh, and administer. The other one is going to continue to speak the word of God into that process to carry it forward. Um, these are spirit-empowered people. Um, all the way through Scripture, oil represents the Holy Spirit, the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron so it dribbled down his beard was a symbol of the Holy Spirit uh, falling on him. So these guys were God's anointed, covered in this never-ending oil. Uh, and what would happen, Zerubbabel will have his hands dirty doing the building and overseeing the building. Joshua would be tending to these lamps, ensuring that the presence of God and the voice of God was being brought forth. They didn't understand all of what this meant. 
They didn't understand that as they're going to this, they're beginning to get the understanding that there was a never-ending supply of this oil to enable them to do the work that they were going to do. And they didn't understand that, that as they're looking at this royal person and this priest that are partnering together to accomplish God's word, that one day a man was going to come who would be of the line of David and who would be of the order of Melchizedek. And we would have this royal priest who would come and sacrifice himself in order that he could go to heaven, be the atoning sacrifice for us, stand at the right hand of the Father as the mediator between us and God and rule in the kingdom. And they didn't understand at that point. They knew the prophecy that one day we were going to be a kingdom of royal priests. That's what Peter tells us. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, a people holy to God that, he could, that we would declare his praises. And so we are royal priests in this order with access to this never-ending supply of oil to fuel the work that we're doing here in this world. They had work to do. It wasn't just sit around and the oil's going to flow over you. They had work to do. They had hard work to do to clear the rubble. They had hard work to do to, to cleanse and restore. the. There were lots of days of hard work ahead of them. But the promise was it doesn't matter how hard it is. The Spirit is going to work through His anointed people to continue to supply His Spirit to the church to be able to continue to do His work. So... I want to put up the image again of this lampstand and all its beauty. Whether you feel like it or not, you are his anointed. Like you're in this room because God has chosen you and he's been calling to you and drawing you and inviting you into more. He wants you to walk more in his spirit than you are right now. He wants more for you today than you're experiencing today. He wants to see more of his work accomplished in you and through you. So there's an invitation in this. Do you believe that you're anointed by God for purpose? And do you look at your life and see yourself walking in the fullness of the spirit that he promises? Paul in Galatians is going to say, walk by the spirit, be led by the spirit. And Ephesians is going to say, be full of the spirit. So what's it look like to be filled with the Spirit to do the work that He is calling us to do? And this is not some crazy charismatic filling, roll around on the ground, laughing, giggling. This is the fullness of God inhabiting your body to transform you so that this light shines from you continually to lead other people into His presence. So if you're here this morning and you want more, if you come in this morning and you're, thinking, you're listening, you're seeing this image and you're thinking, I want this. I want this never-ending flow of oil to fill me. I want to wake up in the morning and not be grumpy at my coworker. I want to not be frustrated by the person that cuts me up. I want to not be stuck in the same sin tomorrow that I'm stuck in today. I don't want to be stuck in that same sense of helplessness and purposelessness and hopelessness. God wants you to know, not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit. And He wants to invite you in to the never-ending supply of Holy Spirit oil that He has for you. In pre-service prayer, one of the images that came up that was fun was uh, stand at the top of a slip and slide ready to slide down the hill. And they said, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an image of fun and family. Uh, but at the end of the day, as soon as you start going down that slide, you have no idea where you're going. <laughs> uh, 
And I think if we picture a slip and slide covered with oil, you'll also be glistening at the end of it. So that's extra fun. Um, but, but yeah, that's the image that we're being invited into. Do you want more is the question. Are you content where your faith is right now? Or do you want to walk into more that God has for you? And so I want to do something symbolic um, today uh, to help walk in this. I have some oil here. Um, and, and the symbol all through Scripture is the anointing oil representing the Spirit doing something in our life. And so the band's going to come up and, and they're going to lead us in some worship. I want to invite you to come forward if you want to say, I want more of what Jesus has to offer me. I want to learn to walk more in the Spirit than I have in the past. I want fuller life than I have before. And I want to come up, and I'm just going to do a little cross, and I'll have some people help me. Do a little cross on your head, um, just as a symbolic act, that you're filled with that oil that is never-ending, that we can become all that Jesus wants us to become. So let me pray. God, thank you again for the beauty of these images, that never-ending supply of oil that you offer to us. God, we want more of you. We don't want to be left the same. Lord, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to rely on last week's encounter with you for this week. I don't want to be living on, on the, the experiences with you I had 10 years ago. I want present experience today. I want to know your will today. I want refreshed calling today. God, I don't want to just rely on our strength and our power to grow a church and take people deeper. I want the fullness of your spirit and everything that we do saturated in the oil of your spirit. God, I want this building anointed with oil. I want our mission anointed with oil. I want everyone from child to oldest, sick and, and, and healthy, uh, to be full of your spirit and accomplishing all that you've asked us to do. So God, we come, we give ourselves to you, and we say, fill us and use us to shine your light to lead people into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.